Good morning. We have communion today, later, and if you're like I am, you can't get this top thing off, like at least, at least not in 60 seconds, so feel free to work on this during the message. <laughs> I cheated today. I brought my pocket knife, so I already decapitated this one here. It's ready to go, because the last time we had communion, I never did get the wafer. <laughs> it's just not designed for old people with arthritis. You want to find the book of Jude a while, the back of your Bibles. <clears throat> the battle of Chemdesh really should have never happened, but it did, and took the lives of eight American soldiers and four Afghan soldiers. 2009, the military planners finally decided to take the advice of everyone who had told them that it was a bad idea to have command outposts Keating where it was. It had been set up in the North Stand province of Afghanistan to, three years before to try to interrupt the flow of insurgents back and forth between Pakistan and Afghanistan. The problem was it was exactly the, op, uh, the wrong place to put it. Anybody who's been in the military knows you always try to get the high ground. That's where you want to be because your enemy has the hardest time getting to you. You have a clear field of fire. This place was, was placed in a valley right next to a river. It was a very small outpost. And it's surrounded by soaring peaks of 10 to 12,000 feet high, covered with trees and boulders that hit a web of enemy trails that insurgents used all the time. Uh, and they couldn't be seen from this command post down, way down to the ground. One of the soldiers said it was like fighting from the bottom of a paper cup. And so they finally decided they were going to close down Keating uh, middle of October in 2009. But that wasn't fast enough. On the morning of October 3rd, 2009, uh, soldiers asleep in their bunks were awakened by the sounds of gunfire and a lot of gunfire. But what really got them moving for their armor and for their weapons was this frantic communique over the, over the radio. Enemy inside the wire. Enemy inside the wire. That means that the enemy had already breached the outer defenses of command outpost Keating. They were already among the soldiers. And it was a pitched battle that, as I said, cost the lives of a lot of people and a lot of lives of the insurgents as well. That's important for our conversation about wolves because today we want to talk a little bit about what it means to be, have wolves inside the wire of the church. But thankfully, we're going to end on a far happier note than that. So let's read these verses in Jude chapter 1, beginning of verse 17. But you, my dear friends... <clears throat> must remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ predicted. They told you that in the last times there would be scoffers whose purpose in life is to satisfy their ungodly desires. These people are the ones who are creating divisions among you. They follow their natural instincts because they do not have God's spirit in them. But you, dear friends, must build each other up in your most holy faith, pray in the power of the Holy Spirit, Await the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will bring you eternal life. In this way, you will keep yourselves safe in God's love. And you must show mercy to those whose faith is wavering. 
Rescue others by snatching them from the flames of judgment. Show mercy to still others, but do so with great caution, hating the sins that contaminate their lives. Father, thank you for the power that you have exerted on the world, first in making it and then in redeeming it. That the hope that we have, as we sang this morning, has a name. It's not just some kind of ethereal, um, uh, something we can't touch that I hope, it's almost like we hope in hope, but we hope in a hope that has a name, Jesus. Thank you that you saw our debilitated condition and you inserted into that chaos the hope of the Lord Jesus Christ who will redeem people one day and as Paul says in Romans 8, not just people, but, but the whole creation, that the land is going to be healed one day, that the animal kingdom is going to be healed one day, that the firmament's going to be healed one day. Weather is not going to go awry. Um, we're not going to have beasts that kill. People are not going to be uh, even annoyed with each other, let alone hate each other and, and wish one another harm. There's going to be a day. And all of that will change. And oh, how we look forward to it. We say with the early church, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Speak to us this morning through your word, through your Holy Spirit, for Jesus' sake. Amen. So as I said, there's a, it's kind of a bleak picture we're starting with, or we've been continuing to talk about these last number of weeks, about the wolves uh, in, in, the, in the church. But thankfully, that's only part of our text this morning. First point, verses 17 and 19, uh, we're to be as believers on guard against wolves, on guard against wolves. And if you've been here the last number of weeks, we've been identifying the wolves as false teachers uh, in the local church. Uh, as, as Jude points out here, the, pro- the apostles have been warning against uh, for years, they've been warning about the appearance of wolves within the church. They, you, you should expect it. In fact, if you have the um, uh, sermon notes today, there's a list there of passages in which Peter predicted wolves and Paul predicted wolves and John, all of them predicted wolves. Uh, they threaten the church. They teach lies. And as we were seeing last week, they, they live lies. They were probably Gnostic teachers, meaning that they thought that the by, that the body was evil and the spirit was good. So my body is but my spirit is good. But because my body is evil and it's not going to last, they thought that we would not have a new body in, in heaven, new heavens and new earth. But this body is going to, to just be done with when we die here. They thought that that meant that they could live wickedly in this body because it's their spirit that's going to go to heaven and be with God one day. And so they're very immoral in their living. Uh, the implication is there was sexual immorality, but it probably went far further uh, than that. So they're living this lie. They're teaching this lie. They're trying to draw people in the church away to their understanding of how uh, life can be lived as a believer. And it also says in verse 19, these people are the ones who are creating divisions among you. Now let me make a couple of comments about unity and division in the local church. Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4 how 
Uh, unity is to be who we are as the body of Christ, to be unified. Now, be careful that you don't mishear me and think I said uniformity. If you look at Keystone's, uh, we have a statement of secondary positions. Uh, we have 12 different positions on things that are outside of what we address in our statement of faith. So we, like most every other church, have a statement of faith or a doctoral statement says, this is what we believe about the Bible, this is what we believe about God, this is what we believe about creation and Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the church and the second coming of Christ and judgment. This is all the things that we believe about that. But we began to realize years ago there's a lot of things that are not addressed in that statement of faith. What do we believe about things like abortion? What do we believe about divorce and remarriage? What do we believe about homosexuality? What do we believe about spiritual gifts and the sign gifts in particular? What do we believe about baptism? Because our doctrinal statement doesn't say anything about when baptism is to occur and how baptism is to occur. And also, what do we believe about unity? And so the final point on those secondary positions is a statement on unity and disunity and division. And this is what it says. We believe that unity is one of the church's greatest blessings, just as division is one of the devil's meanest curses. And consequently, while we encourage lively debate and disagreement, we insist that it be done in a spirit of grace, kindness, and love. If the elders <clears throat> determine someone is dividing the church, he or she will be addressed quickly and the matter handled biblically. Now, if you're relatively new to Keystone, let me just try to translate that for you a little bit. This means that if you have a concern about something at Keystone, we not only um, uh, are open to hearing from you as leaders, we, are, we want to hear from you. Please come and see us. Please come and talk to us about your concerns. We want to be able to hear from you. One of the uh, portions of our meetings when we get together as elders is to, uh, we want to hear from the elders there. What are you hearing from the body of Christ? What are you hearing people say about, are there things that we should address, things that we should be aware of, things that we should be uh, concerned about? So we want you to come to the elders and speak up. We want you to, in our congregational meetings, to speak your peace. If you've come to the elders and you have a concern and we've uh, we've shared our opinion on that and so forth. And you say, I'd, I'd like to talk with other people in the body about it. We would say, yes, speak up at the congregational meeting. Now, how you do it really matters. How you do that at our congregational meeting really matters. We don't want any yelling. We don't want any screaming. We don't want you talking down to people who hold a different opinion than yours. But you are free to share your opinion and express that at our congregational meetings. But you, as Paul says in Philippians 1, conduct, we always conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Amen? Amen? Amen. That should be everybody, right? Always conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that means when we have disputes among ourselves, we have disagreements among ourselves, we want to get that stuff out in the open. Yes, we want to hear people have, say what you have to say, but how it's done matters a great deal. Because we seek unity in the body of Christ, not uniformity. Uniformity means everybody thinks the same way. You know, we've had these, this last uh, year and a half, all the debates about masks and vaccines. And my guess is if I asked you to raise your hand which side of the spectrum you're on, we would be d divided all over the place here. Can you 
allow someone else in the body of Christ to disagree with you? Can they allow somebody else in the body to disagree with them without being a missionary for your position? But unity has a lot to do with the spirit, doesn't it? It has a lot to do with our spirit, how we think about other people, how we think about other people who disagree with us on, on some side issues. And so just so you understand, we seek in this church unity, not uniformity. And there's a great difference. To be able to sit down to, with somebody on a Sunday morning who holds an entirely different position than you do on some secondary matter. Obviously, we have to come together on the central issues, and that's why we have that doctrinal statement. But to be able to have flexibility with each other and still be able to seek this unity that the Bible calls us to. Well, Jude seems to insist that wolves are to be expected. They threaten the church, but they're to be expected. And this is where I want to make the transition to the more glorious parts of this text. Dispatching wolves is not the mission. Dispatching wolves is not the mission of the church. It's not the mission of believers. What is? It is exalting in and proclaiming Christ. That's our mission. The last four or five years, uh, we have had a problem in our, on our property with mosquitoes. And it used to be we could be outside all the time. We never had mosquitoes. At least I never got bit. Some other people would come and get bit occasionally. But these days when I go outside, if I go outside, whether it's to mow the yard or pull weeds, do some uh, project and I have the garage doors up, I, I get bit all the time. Four, five, six mosquito bites in a matter of 45 minutes, say. And we don't really know what to do. We don't really know what the problem is. Uh, we're getting rid of the bird bath. I think that's probably one problem. Standing water is a bad idea. Uh, we had a company come in and spray a couple months ago, and the guy said, now you do, you do realize that in spraying your property that mosquitoes do not absorb, uh, observe boundaries? I'm like, yeah, I get that. But we want to at least kill what's on the property. I got a zapper too. You, any of you have a bug zapper? I mean, that's just fun to listen to. <laughs> if it doesn't solve any bug problem, it's at least fun to listen to when you're out there in the mosquito. Oh, another one. It's like victory. But the, the bottom line is, though, that we, to some degree, we're going to have to make peace with mosquitoes, right? That's why we have bug spray. So you spray off on, you go sit on the patio, you have a fire there. You're, you're, my mission is not to eradicate mosquitoes because that's probably never going to happen. I still want to be able to mow the yard. I still want to be able to enjoy a, a nice evening with friends on the patio. Mos mosquitoes, they're a nuisance and annoyance, but we're never going to get rid of them. And I think that's part of what Jude is trying to say. He said, look, the, the, the apostles predicted that you're always going to have wolves. They said that in the end times, and side note, end times... Last days, last times, that runs from when Jesus went back to heaven until Jesus comes back from heaven, right? It's not just that little portion of time right before Jesus comes back. We are living in the last days. We are living in the last times. And John said it, Peter said it, Paul said it, you're going to have wolves in the church. Our responsibility is to be alert for them, but not live, live uh, all about trying to dispose of them. We simply have to be on guard, be attentive, realize that they are some threat, but that is not our mission. Listen, there's something I've observed over the years, my years in the church, 
and I'm not talking just about Keystone or even primarily about Keystone, but all my friends that are pastors and talking about stuff that goes on in their churches. Sometimes you can become so consumed with the negative that you forget what you're called to do. So consumed about this problem, that problem, you forget that we're here to proclaim and make much of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're here to get the good news to the farthest reaches around the world. We are here for His glory, not for the latest bad story in the congregation. And I, one of the things that I've watched with you is there, there are, there's certain people, none of them at Keystone, but there are certain people who get fixated on something that they don't like about their church. And they can't get past it. It's, you know, it's usually not doctrinal issues that splits the church. It's usually some petty thing about somebody did this or somebody's not doing that and I want to see this instead of this. And it, it, it's, it's, again, it's not something in here that says you must do it this way or you can't do it this way. It's something small. And then they move on to another church. And then something happens there, and they move on to another church. And in the process, Jesus Christ has gotten lost in their minds. They're so fixated on this negative, 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 negative. And Paul, Paul wants us to understand this. Jude wants us to understand this. Peter wants us to understand this. John wants us to understand this, that Jesus is everything. Be on guard against wolves, yes. But don't get preoccupied with wolves. Don't get preoccupied with wolves. We are called to proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ. That's my second point. Be on mission. Be on guard against wolves was our first one. But secondly, be on mission for Christ. Verse tw- beginning verse 20. And there's a lot of interesting. I mean, it, really, you could take these verses as kind of a package of how to live as one of the, the members of the body of Christ. How to live as a church member. How to be as, as a Christian. And the first one here. Verse 20, but you, dear friends, must build each other up in your most holy faith. Uh, it's an unfortunate translation because it literally says, build yourselves up. Now, the effect might be the same, but the, uh, uh, the person that Jude is speaking to is each of us individually for ourselves. Build yourselves up. Now, as we build ourselves up, we're probably going to build each other up as well. But the point is, you are being called here by Jude to build yourself up in your faith. In other words, uh, as Peter says, grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how do you do that? If someone was a new Christian and asked you, uh, brother or sister, how do I grow as a Christian? What would you tell them? That's not a rhetorical question. What would you tell him? What's that? Amen. Read the Bible. Does that sound like a broken record? Read the Bible. Say, well, I I come to church on Sunday and I hear the preacher read the Bible and maybe go to Keystone Institute. Isn't that enough? How many of you are runners in here? Like you like to run. There's one back there, someone back there, there's three, four there. See, there's not a lot of you, I, and I appreciate that. <laughs> I, I don't understand, for me, I don't understand the, the motivation for running is just lost to me. It's like, you know, if I want to get from point A to B, that's, that's what God gave me cars for. 
or a bicycle at least. But some of you people like to run marathons, right? 26, it was 26 and a half miles, right? Now, if you're training for a marathon, let me ask you, do you just run once a week? Yes, no. 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 You run every day, right? Uh, my, my son just did some insane uh, running thing not too long ago. I, he ran like 33 miles or something. I'm like, you know, for why? Just get in the car. I'll take you. <laughs> but he's running every day. Running every day, 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 running every day. Why wouldn't it be true that if we're going to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we drink from the fountain every day, every day, every day, every day, every day. This this is part of of our, our, our offense those of you who like football. So can you, if you understand football, you know that uh, every team has a defensive unit and an offensive unit, right? Now just imagine that the coach decided, so the, coach is, the team's down 14-0, and the coach on the losing team decides for the rest of the game we're just going to play defense. So he sends a defensive unit out, and, and now if you understand the game, you know, well, that doesn't really work like that. But let's just, for our purposes, pretend it could. What's, what's wrong with that? And the reason I bring this up is we're back to the idea of the wolves. Do we just play defense and try to keep them out? Or do we need to go on offense? A, a football team that just plays defense, sooner or later, they're going to get tired. A running back's going to get through the line, make it into the end zone, or a wide receiver's going to beat the secondary. He's going to get in the end zone. And you're already down 14 zip. You cannot win. If you, you just feel defense, you have to put the offense on the field sometimes. And, and this is really what we're talking about in these final verses here. We're talking about how we can uh, play offense as the people of God. How, how can we prepare ourselves to play off- offense? How can we actually do the offensive play? Personal training. There's just no substitute. And it doesn't stop with the word of God, does it? The body of Christ is part of how we, help, how we be, uh, grow in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our brothers and sisters help us um, in prayer, repentance. Martin Luther said all the Christian life is repentance. In other words, we have to be, sometimes we think we have to become a better and better human being uh, in order to be a growing Christian. Well, that'd be nice. But probably more important is to become better and better at repenting, to see our sin, to see it more readily and and repent and turn from it more quickly and then find the the joy of the Lord Jesus Christ's forgiveness more readily. Forgiveness of others. Personal training includes, includes all these things. And then he also says in verse 20, pray in this, excuse me, pray in the power of the Spirit. It simply says pray in the Spirit it probably does include the power, but I think even more importantly is pray under the direction of the Spirit. Now, there's two places in the New Testament that talks about praying in the Spirit. It's been a lot of debate by theologians what that means. And some of our brothers and sisters in, in some charismatic churches might argue that's speaking in tongues. Most people, including most charismatics, don't think that's the case. 
You say, well, what does it mean then to pray under the influence and direction of the Holy Spirit? Let me ask you this. When you get down on your knees and your prayer time in the morning, your daily worship with the Lord, do you have a list in front of you? And if you do, do you only pray through that list? Or do you give God an opportunity for him to weigh in on what he wants you to pray for? I only pray one day a week through a list, and that's the day that I pray through all of our uh, pray for all of our global partners. The rest of the days, and I, this has changed for me over the years. I used to have a prayer list for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Different prayer list for each day. But you know what? It just became first of all, it became rote. It just became a habit, a discipline. I didn't feel like I was connecting with God. So now, when I I begin my prayer time, I simply ask God. Who do you want me to pray about uh, for today? What do you want me to pray about today? And then I go the direction that the mind seems to go. And I'm sure sometimes I miss the boat. But it's been really interesting to see some of the things that I prayed for. It's like, okay, he wasn't on my radar. She wasn't on my radar. That uh, incident wasn't on my radar. God the Holy Spirit will guide you as you seek his leading in prayer. After all, wouldn't it be awful to pray only about the things that we think are important and miss the things that God thinks is important? Pray in the Spirit. There's six of these we're pulling out of these verses. That's the second one, pray, personal intercession. So we have personal training, personal intercession. Verse 21, live for the best thing and await the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Await the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ who will bring you eternal life. He's talking about the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Wonder how many of you thought about Christ's return this week. Or thought about dying and meeting Christ this week. Say, that sounds really morbid. Is it? I told my mother several months ago probably wasn't a nice thing to say. She turned 93 today. Um, But I told her, I said, Mom, none of us get out of this life alive. Not a one of us. And if that's the case, it would do us well to think more readily about dying and about seeing the Lord Jesus Christ, whether it's his return or through death. In fact, the Bible seems to admonish us to do this again and again and again. There's, he, says, he says await here. Await the uh, return of the Lord Jesus Christ, the mercy that he's going to bring. Await. Does that mean just you know, kind of put up with the duration? Or is he talking about an anticipation? And I wonder how many of us have that, that we really long for his appearing. We look forward to seeing Jesus face to face. Would our kids know that? As we teach them, as, they, as we train them, do they have any sense from us that this is something they should anticipate if they know the Lord Jesus Christ? Or do we hang on as long as we can and, and we, we try to stretch out life? And don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm not talking about Uh, We shouldn't pursue medical means to extend life. I'm just saying, is that what we're primarily about? Or are we anticipating seeing the Savior who gave his life for us face to face one day? Are you looking forward to that, brother? Are you looking forward to that, sister? Because here's, here's a truism. 
He's looking forward to that. He's looking forward to that. He can't wait to see you face to face. He longs to embrace you, the one that he gave his life for. He's longing for that day of fellowship, the likes of which we can't have yet today. Live for the best thing. Number four, verse 22, love Christian doubters, and you must show mercy to those whose faith is wavering. You must show mercy to those whose faith is wavering. I've watched already as Christians speak to people who are wrestling with doubts. And I thought to myself, wow, that wouldn't be very encouraging. You remember how gentle, there was a little edge to it, but how gentle and kind Jesus was to Thomas? John chapter 20, remember, remember Thomas? He had received the report that Jesus had risen from the dead. And Thomas said, yeah, I'm not going to believe that until I can touch the nail prints in his hands and put my hand in his side where the spear went in. That's when I'll believe it. And so one day when all the disciples are together, Jesus shows up in the midst of them and he singles out Thomas and he walks over to him and he goes, here you go, Thomas. Touch the nail prints. Go ahead. Put your hand right here in my side. Go, go ahead. Do that and believe. He goes on to say, you know, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. There was a little bit of an edge to it, but he, he didn't scold Thomas. He didn't, like, what's your problem, Thomas? So gentle. I can guarantee you there are people here this morning and maybe they're sitting next to you who are wrestling with doubts about their faith. And you know what? Some of them are terrified to vocalize them because they're not sure how people are going to react. Oh my. We need to create a climate and a culture in the local church where people who are struggling with doubts open up rather than shut up. Because they need us, right? We're back to part of the personal training. They need the body of Christ. We need the body of Christ. I was speaking at LBC back in September in a perspectives course, and I had shared with them, and I had gone through a crisis of faith when I was in seminary where I wasn't sure that Jesus was actually the Son of God, and I had a, had a woman come up to me afterwards. She was an LBC student, and she said, tell me about your your crisis of faith, she said, she said, you really didn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God? I'm like, yeah. Oh, she goes, I, I, I just went through, about a year ago, I went through a horrible crisis of faith. She said, I, I, I doubted everything. She brought up in a Christian home. She said, I doubted it all. And she said, I'm, I'm mostly back now. She said, but she said, I would rather be impaled on a stake than ever go through that again. I'm like, oh, that's kind of gross. But if you've ever been down that road, you know how terrible it is. And I, and I wondered, I, I asked her, I said, you ha- did you have people to talk to about that? She said, it, was a, it was pretty much a private adventure. How terrible. How terrible that the body of Christ 
wouldn't be a spiritual doctor. Couldn't be a spiritual doctor for her. Have mercy. Sometimes I think we're afraid that if we start talking too much with someone who's doubting that we might doubt. Maybe that's a fear. But our call is we show mercy to those whose faith is wavering. That's number four. Number five, I think, is love lost people. Verse 23. The question here whether we're talking about um, professing believers who might not be or who are drifting away. I think, though, he's talking about lost people. Rescue others by snatching them from the flames of judgment. That flames of judgment seems to portray those who are hell-bound. Love lost people. I love when B.J. Miller challenges me, you know, do you have, Keith, you have lost people in your mind. Did you think about lost people this week? Did you have any opportunity to talk with somebody who's lost? That's part of who we're called to be, right? Have our radar out for lost people so that we can rescue others by snatching them from the flames. He doesn't mean that we're going to necessarily lead them to Christ, but we're, we're part of this great work of the body of Christ that might entail six other people before they ever say yes to Jesus. But I'm ready, willing, and able to play my role in helping rescue lost people. And then lastly, number six, verse 23. Show mercy to still others, but do so with great caution, hating the sins that contaminate their lives. He's talking about people in the church who are stuck in a sin pattern, and we're supposed to help them. We're supposed to love them and show mercy to them, but being careful that we don't get sucked into their sin. It's virtually the same thing the apostle Paul said in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. He said, Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. And be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. I think that's just a great reminder that we could be falling into that sin ourselves. We who understand our own frailty, who understand our own fallibility, who understand our own prone to sinfulness, should be the first to draw up beside a brother and sister and put our arms around them and say, I'll help you walk this journey back to faith. Should be the first. The fact that we realize how vulnerable we are and how wrong we could be in it, find ourselves on the other side of this equation down the road, should be the motivation for us to say, how can I help you walk this journey? It might be talking. It might be correcting. It it might be listening. uh, It might be um, simply taking them out for pizza and say, I know you're stuck. Tell me how I can help or tell me how you got here. What is so appealing about this or that sin that, that you find you can't let it go? Having those conversations, we don't need to start with rebukings. There's a tenderness. Again, there's a mercy. 
Jude keeps talking about showing mercy to people in this. I think, what would it be like if we had a church where everybody showed everybody else mercy? What would that be like? How glorious would that be? What's James say? Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let me leave you with a couple of takeaways. The greatest threats are always inside the church, not outside the church. The greatest threats to the church are always inside the church, not outside the church. I know there's a lot of concern these days about Washington, D.C. and Harrisburg, Pennsylvania and a trimming of rights and so forth. But the same church that weathered Rome that has weathered Beijing, that has weathered Kampala, Uganda, and Idi Amin. That same church is going to weather Washington, D.C. It's going to weather Harrisburg. And just a footnote, the church always seems to do better when it's persecuted, not better when it's powerful. I am far less concerned about the Joe Bidens of this world and the congressmen of our nation than I am about the Rob Bells, the Joel Osteens, the Jen Hatmakers, the Brandon Robertsons, and the Nadia Bowles-Webbers. Far more concerned about those, the wolves inside the church. And my second takeaway is that the greatest hope is not eradicating wolves. It is to be the church and to proclaim Christ's kingdom in all of its power, all of its glory, and all of its majesty. Don't let problem here, problem there, problem there in the church blindside us to what we're called to be and do. Finish up with another piece of the story that I shared with you at the beginning. During that firefight, um, <clears throat> at Camp Command Outpost Keating, which lasted uh, about 11, 12 hours. Uh, the man who led the counterattack that day, Staff Sergeant Clinton Romache, who ended up receiving uh, the Congressional Medal of Honor for his actions, was with another man. Uh, they were next to a, a generator, and they were so fixated on the Taliban up here on the mountains surrounding them that they forgot about their flanks until an RPG exploded that generator and Romache's arm and side was peppered with shrapnel. Now this is a battle-hardened veteran. He'd been in the service 10 years at that point. He'd served in Iraq, uh, several tours. And staff sergeants are really the um, they're the kind of brains behind the outfit usually. They are the ones who make the men work for the lieutenants and so forth. And he had always drilled into his men, don't put blinders on. Don't put blinders on. Don't put blinders on. In other words, you have to be looking 360. And I would say that to us as a church. There will be days ahead when we will have problems in this church. There will be people unhappy, and they may have valid reasons for being unhappy, or they may not. 
There may be this thing going on, that thing going on. Never lose sight. Never lose sight. Never lose sight. Never lose sight. We are here for him. We are here to delight in Jesus and to make him known. To paradise, Pennsylvania, and the ends of the earth until he returns. Let's pray. Faithful, faithful Lord, how grateful we are that you're so, so faithful that it, even when or even though we are faithless, you are not. We're so grateful that you are running the church. You have appointed leaders, you have appointed elders, you have appointed pastors. But it's you that's running the church. Because it's your church, it's not ours. And you love the church so much that the Bible calls it your bride. Oh God, help us to love the church that way. Help us to love it with the kind of affection and delight in that Jesus loves his bride. We've read about some things that should mark us as the people of God this morning. Kind of this ongoing, ongoing personal training. Like we're never staying still, never content to be at level one when we could be at level two or three or four. Never content to be in the back, not working, always desiring to be in the front, working for the advancement of your kingdom. And that more and more people might know and delight in Jesus. Showing mercy to those in the body who are floundering. Reaching lost people. Showing mercy to those ensnared in sin. Father, would you answer a prayer to make us more and more like that? Me first and the rest of us. And as we're about to be reminded this morning in communion, this all matters because of what Jesus did for us. Fill us with delight in that anticipation of seeing him face to face and a resolve driven by the Holy Spirit to make our lives count for Jesus' sake, as long as you give us breath. In Jesus' name, amen.